0: In the end, it was his brother who inadvertently led the police to Alan Hall. In December 1985, two months after the murder of Arthur Easton, Greg Hall moved out of the family home. He decided to go flatting with a friend nearby. As police were continuing the hunt for Arthur Easton's killer, they were doing door-to-door inquiries and a flyer, was left with Greg's flatmate. She answered
1: the door and I spoke to her about it and left. And then she told me about them visiting. She's talking about the hat and a bayonet.
0: The flyer showed grainy black and white images of the police's two key pieces of evidence, the military bayonet and the brown hat. It provided police phone numbers and details and appealed for help from the public.
1: When I looked at it I thought, ah, oh that looked similar to the hat that he used to have.
0: He thought the bayonet looked familiar too. It was much like the kind that his brother had collected. Greg mentioned as much to his flatmate. And then when police returned the following day, making another inquiry, the flatmate passed us on. This simple comment, made purely by chance, would become the most crucial break police had had in the case in months. And they moved fast. The next morning Greg was contacted and then on the 11th of December 1985 police found themselves heading to the reception desk of Sterling Pharmaceuticals and asking to speak to an employee called Alan Ball. From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike Wesley-Smith. For the past year, I've been investigating a home invasion and murder that happened on a quiet suburban street in Papakura on the night of October 13th, 1985. I've retraced the steps of the killer, interviewed witnesses who were never called to testify, and uncovered evidence that was never submitted to the court.
2: Shocking. It's uh, probably one of the worst experiences I've ever been through. They make you feel a criminal, you know. And you know you have done nothing
0: wrong. This is a story of the murder of Arthur Easton and the conviction of Alan Hall, a man with no alibi or answers. But it's also a story about our system of justice, the power and trust we give to police and prosecutors and their ability to find the truth. My name is
3: Alan Hall. And I was wrong with the three convictions of the murder of Arthur Easton.
0: It was getting late on the evening of October 13th, 1985, when Ellen's family first heard the news about Arthur
2: Easton. Oh, I went to the house I just switched the radio on, and um, just happened to catch the news broadcast where a man had been killed and two others injured, and that the offender was still at large.
0: The family usually left the house unlocked at night, but unsettled by the news about a murder in Papakura, Shirley got up to tell her son Gary to lock the doors.
4: It's sort of, it's pretty vivid, eh? Considering how long ago it was.
0: That's Gary. I recently spoke with him about his memories of that night.
4: Someone heard it on the radio, I think Mum. I think it was Mum, and um, she had the radio going quite a lot in the room and all that. And something was going down in girl, and, and um, there was someone on the loose.
0: Alan's other brother, Jeff, had been at the movies. He'd gone to see Michael J. Fox's Back to the Future. When Jeff got home around 10.30, he remembered being surprised to find the house locked up. The door was locked in the house, and
4: uh, and um, I said, oh, that's strange. And, uh, you know, walking in, I says, oh, said, oh, Mum said, that there's uh, been a stabbing in the crew and make sure the cars are locked and the, the doors are locked.
0: By this point, Alan was already back from his walk and in his bed in the sleepout. He'd come home, he reckons, somewhere between eight and eight thirty. His sister Andrea told police that she'd seen him arrive back. Alan says he had a shower, listened to some queen for a bit on his stereo, and then he had gone to bed. Greg, who shared the sleep out with Alan, his brother, had been out with friends. He got home around ten o'clock, and he recalls that Alan was still awake.
1: Um, well I saw him and he sort of looked at me and, you know, he said so hi and that and then just get ready for bed and hopped in and Lights out,
0: went to sleep. Now, it's worth remembering that the prosecution says at this point in time, Alan had committed murder. That he had furiously fought with three much larger men. He had killed one and stabbed another. That he had sustained kicks to the groin, punches to the body and the head, and had a squash racket smashed down on his skull until it broke from the impact. Did you see any injuries on him?
1: No, nothing. I think he just looked normal. He just like laying there, yeah. calm, and in bed, his, tucked up. you see his face clearly? Yes. Sir.
0: And there were no injuries? No. The next morning, Jeff saw Alan as he got ready to leave for work.
4: Well, I can be pretty sure there was zero injuries on him. I, mean, I can be pretty sure because that would be something totally out of the norm. So, so just his normal self? Just his normal self, yeah.
0: Now let me say early on, it is fair to question, as police did, the accounts of Alan's family members and to ask whether they're just telling a story that will help their loved one. But the Hall family weren't the only ones to see an account for Alan in the hours after Arthur Easton was killed. The day after the murder was a Monday and Alan went to work at Sterling Pharmaceuticals as usual. He took the trip from Papakura to Manyarewa, picked up a pie for breakfast and ate it as he walked to the factory to start work at 7.30 in the morning. When he arrived, he saw his supervisor, Paul Appleford, who we met in the previous episode. Paul said that he saw nothing untoward in Alan's demeanour that morning. It's an impression he repeated to me three decades later. I honestly can't recollect
5: anything that was different because I was dealing with him, giving him instructions, talking with him, working with him as well, so I'm sure I would have noticed it could have been standoffish or something like that.
0: Paul also said he didn't see any injuries on Alan. Had there been anything on his face, I'm sure I would have seen something on his face
5: had he had any cuts or bruises or something like that. You know, because I'm so close to him every day. And I can't recall anything like that at all, no. I definitely can't.
0: So if it's true that Alan Hall murdered Arthur Easton just the night before, and as Alan's defence team would later argue, then surely there ought to have been some mark on him, some sign of such a vicious, brutal fight. But according to those who saw him, there was nothing. Alan looked normal, showed up to work as usual, and went about his job in the normal, quiet way he did. And as October 1985 moved into November, then December, Alan continued to go to work, Monday to Friday, and spend his evenings and weekends crisscrossing the streets of Papakura on foot or on his red 10-speed bike. Until, of course the day the police came to Stirling Pharmaceuticals to find him. By December 1985, police had determined that the brown woolen hat, which at first had appeared so generic, was actually one of only 40 made in the country. Here is Detective Senior Sergeant Calvin McMinn. The amount of work on the face of the hat suggests that it would be too expensive
4: to produce commercially. However... It could have been manufactured uh, by a cottage industry or a one-off by a particular person.
0: The small batch hat had been produced by a company called McEwen Textiles and was sold at just a half a dozen ski shops in New Zealand. Two of the outlets were at Mount Ruapehu and it was at one of these that Greg, Alan's brother, said he brought the hat in 1982.
1: I just went into the ski shop. And just walking around looking at all what they got around here and there's this, in the middle, like a bargain bin and had all the hats in there, five bucks. Yeah. Oh, that'll do it. Look at it, double layer, yeah, that'll do it. Went
0: and bought it. Crucial information had also been gathered about the bayonet. In relation to the bayonet, a lot of information has
4: been supplied to the police.
0: It had now been identified as an M96 Swedish model, one of at least 300 that had been imported into New Zealand in the previous three years. And from a receipt provided by Valentine's, the military store in Hamilton, it was now known that one had been purchased for $45 by one Mr. Alan Russell Hall. I think there was a
4: sense of we've found the person responsible. That was the message that was coming through from the, um, the, the head of the inquiry team.
0: Police were ready to swoop. The 11th of December 1985 is a day the Hall family will never forget. Siblings Gary, Jeff and Andrea were all collected up by police and brought into the police station for questioning.
4: It was quite interesting, you know, I go into the police station and there was a big white board with a hundred photographs on it and every single one of them was a, a dark skin, you know, of suspects in this, right. in this murder. And a hundred photographs, I think there was one that... Um, didn't fit the description
5: right.
0: that
4: the police had given out.
0: This is Jeff speaking. He says he wasn't only questioned about Alan that day. During his interview at the police station, detectives tried a tactic of pinning the murder on him. Did they ever ask, did they ever say, oh, you did it? Yeah,
4: oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I was uh, I was directly pointed at as well. And what did they say? Well, it's like, you know, it's, it's a direct threat and it's like, we believe that you are the one that did this crime, we believe you went into that house and, and uh
0: um, do you ask them what evidence they have of
4: that? No. I no. just like you know, your first feeling is being not experienced with police at all, was uh was like, What what me? And then you're thinking, you know, it's it's quite a quite a intimidating sort of process that yeah, they I put know. you through.
0: Then just before ten thirty AM that same day Detective Sergeant James White from Papakura CIB walked into Sterling Pharmaceuticals and asked to speak with Alan. This is where the story of Alan Hall starts to get murky. Because in the police car ride back and at the station, Alan began to talk. When questioned, Alan admitted that he'd borrowed that brown woolen hat from his brother Greg. And then... He said he owned the bayonet. Here's a transcript of Alan's police interview read by actors. Is that
5: your bayonet then?
3: Um, yeah, I think that's mine.
5: Are you sure that's your bayonet?
3: It has the same rust marks, yeah.
5: Have you seen this hat before?
3: Yeah, it's my brother Greg's hat. Are you sure you've seen that hat? It's the exact same colour, yeah. I, I borrowed it off him when I went skiing.
0: But when detectives asked Alan what had happened to these items and how they came to be found in the home of Arthur Easton, he started to tell lies. He gave four inconsistent explanations, first saying he'd lost the items, then that he'd thrown them out, then that a man had robbed him of them.
5: Come on, Alan, that's crap, and you know it. No, it's not. Alan, that's a completely different story to the one you told us earlier. That's lies, and you know it.
3: You won't believe my other story.
5: With all these lies, Alan, I'm going to have to start taking a hard look at you. It's your bayonet that killed Mr. Easton, and it's your brother's hat at the scene. Did you lose the bayonet, or what?
3: I told you it was stolen. It was stolen from my room. I think Jeffrey's friend must have done it. Who, Alan? I don't know.
0: This was the explanation Alan eventually settled on, that the items had been stolen from his bedroom about a month before the murder. Confused? So was I. And it's pretty easy to see why police thought they had a strong suspect. As he told police, Alan says he got scared being questioned by detectives.
5: If you had nothing to do with this, then surely it would be better to tell someone about it.
3: I didn't want them to start pointing the finger at me, you know?
5: Did you tell anyone about the bayonet at all? No. Why not, Alan?
3: It's the only way I survive. I, I tell people nothing, you know? Nobody understands me. If I told them that my bayonet was stolen, they wouldn't believe me. People would start pointing the finger at me, you know?
0: Alan's family has always accepted that these conflicting versions of Alan's story might look pretty suspicious. Can you explain why he may have got himself into such a tangle or told a totally
4: different story? Well, you have to remember, Alan was uh, interviewed for seven hours uh, with a, I like to call them a crack team of New Zealand detectives. Yeah. Um, and then he was interviewed again for another 12 to 15 hours. All right. But no lawyer, no break.
0: He was interviewed twice. The first was for nine hours. The second, 12 hours. But importantly, he never once confessed to the crime.
5: Mr. Easton didn't deserve to die, Alan. He's got two sons and a daughter. He's a family man, like your dad. It was your bayonet that
0: did this, Alan.
5: How did you get the bayonet over to Mr. Easton's house? I said it was
3: stolen. How should I know?
0: Later in court, Alan's lawyers would attribute his inconsistent statements to what they would call his intellectual backwardness. Here's Greg again.
1: Well, he would have had, he's would he got all that police pressure on him. And he's trying to make it go away, I guess. And uh, in his way, in his world, um, he'd probably come up with these statements, probably the wrong thing to do. Should have stuck to his original story.
0: That last version of Alan's story, that sometime in September 1985, a thief had entered his bedroom in the sleep out and stolen the bayonet and hat, is the explanation that Alan and his family has stuck with ever since. And how did you know it was stolen? Um, a mattress.
4: Is that a place. Mm. No, it wasn't straight Some was the back end it was on the hangar out. Mm. Yeah. I knew I didn't know
0: that. Okay. Alan also says $50 and other clothing items were taken as well. So it was easy for someone to walk in and walk
4: out? Yeah. Detectives have finally traced the origin of the bayonet used to slay Arthur Easton in his Papakura home. Both the bayonet and a woolen hat dropped by the killer fleeing the Grove Road murder scene belong to a young man living about two kilometres away.
0: Police were suspicious of Alan's burglary scenario. In the months since a break-in had occurred... Why had not a single member of the large Hall family come forward and reported the incident to police? Here is Shirley Hall speaking to Radio Pacific in the 1980s.
2: Yes, I do, I do, and I've kept myself ever since, but yes. unfortunately that's what I did. It just went clean out of my mind yes. with everything else that was happening. Unfortunately, it did happen. Alan did tell me that his money and jeans were missing and I was, was sort of was living on a the run then, caring for her husband, etc said, oh, I might have mis- mixed the jeans with the other boys' things and perhaps you mislaid your money. But I did look and I couldn't find them. And then, with the pressure and everything, and then Kelly died and it was just forgotten about. And all these later developments showed that it was more missing.
0: Shirley's husband, Kelly, had died from heart disease on the 18th of September 1985, just under a month before Arthur Easton's murder. Alan's family said that when the sleepout was burgled, a few days before Kelly died, they'd been overwhelmed and distracted by the death of their father and husband. Even when questioned by detectives after being brought into the police station in December 1985, Greg Hall says the break-in completely slipped his mind.
1: I just forgot about it, because at first we thought that well, it's just been mislaid or someone's put it somewhere and I've forgotten where they're putting it or...
0: That seems like a convenient explanation. What would you say to people who might be skeptical of the book
2: scenario?
1: Um, they're most welcome to think that way, but when you look at the timeline of events, um, we start with my father, how we discussed earlier, how he was uh, very sick and he died on September 18th. Yeah. That burglary was, uh, we're, we're sort of putting around September 14th. Yeah. Um, and there was work going on then that, um, you know, and we're looking around for it. like I said, they thought the items were misplaced and they're just searching every, mm. where they can, mm. try and find them. Um, and then the father's died, and then all that just becomes irrelevant.
0: And there's another element that police believed incriminated Alan Hall. Alan told them that he'd purchased the three bayonets from the military store Valentine's in Hamilton. So what had he done with the other two? Well, Alan said at the time, and has told me, that after he heard about Arthur's murder, he threw the other two bayonets out. He says he was worried they could be used in another crime. It's an explanation that his mum, not surprisingly, believed.
2: Well, I've already told you about the prowls coming around time and time. I mean, say somebody had picked up that knife of Alan's, as we suspect has happened, and, um, well, they could have come back for more.
0: With all these contradictions, misleading statements and backtracks, there are many holes to pick in Alan's explanations. If he didn't commit the murder, why did he throw away these two other bayonets? Why didn't he go to police about the bayonet being stolen? After all, they had been circulating flyers with a picture of his missing bayonet around Papakura for weeks. Alan also gave conflicting accounts of how long he'd been out walking that evening, or exactly where he had gone. His various versions had him out of the house for anywhere between 30 minutes and an hour and a half. When police did a walkthrough of his route, it took them less than 20 minutes to complete it.
5: I don't want to get in an argument, Alan. From what you told me, you've been out for an hour, and at most, an hour and ten. That walks fifteen minutes. Where were you for the rest of the time?
3: I don't have to answer your questions anymore. I, I know my rights.
5: Well, you have to admit, it does look a bit suspicious.
3: Look, I'm not involved. I didn't do it.
5: But you are involved, Alan. It's your bayonet and hat at the scene. You weren't home at the time Mr. Easton was killed. What do you expect us to think? I know it looks suspicious,
2: okay? Thousands of people don't have alibis, it doesn't make them guilty of anything. Yes.
0: Nonetheless, Ellen was now firmly in police sights. On the afternoon of the 11th of December 1985, the same day police had hauled in Ellen and his siblings for questioning. Officers descended on Ellen's family home to execute a search warrant.
2: Somebody in a senior position came along with a warrant to search the house to look for bloodstained clothes and papers in connection with the Easton murder. And what stuff. did you do? Well, I just did it for a moment, but I had to give them permission to search.
0: In total, 15 police officers roamed through the house, leaving Shirley
2: overcome. Shocking. It's uh, probably one of the worst experiences I've ever been through. they make you feel a criminal, you know. And
0: you know you're doing nothing wrong. That's when the the items were found in the 44-gallon drum, mm. uh, the burnt items. Police had come across an old 44-gallon drum in the backyard, the kind that can be used to burn waste. In the bottom of the drum, they found ashes, which they collected into plastic bags. Alan later told police that he'd burnt some items before his father's death, and brother Jeff said it was routine for the family to burn waste.
4: Mum had done a lot of clearing out of of old clothes and things like that, so they were looking at items that had been burnt through the incinerator, so they were bringing out ash and put into plastic bags.
0: Forensic scientists would eventually find no evidence in the material from the drum that was connected with the homicide. But it is clear from reading the police files that this did nothing to reduce detectives' belief that Alan had used the drum to destroy incriminating evidence.
5: What's the story about the burnt clothes in the incinerator?
3: Yeah, they're mine. They were just clothes that were too small for me.
5: Were there gloves in that?
3: I don't know. I didn't burn any gloves.
0: Are you sure?
3: It must have just been mixed up in there.
0: In the months ahead, the police would continue to slowly build their case against Alan Hall. But in reality, the foundation of that case was already set in stone. A bayonet, a hat, and no alibi. These three items were what police and the prosecution would later say proved Alan Hall was Arthur Easton's killer. In the next episode of Grove Road...
5: So I think the general opinion was that um, there was something wrong with that case for sure and that I don't think any of us really believed that he was guilty...
1: There was significant connection between Alan and, of course, the bayonet and the hat that were found at the scene.
2: And then they came out. They all had their heads bowed. The judge asked the foreman if they had reached a verdict.
0: Grove Road was produced by Maggie Wicks. Audio production by Asher Bastian. Music by Asher Bastian and Grant Brody. Graphics were done by Kushal Bhatia, Vinay Ranchhood, and James Brown, with help from Finn Hogan, Silka Wheel, Roman Newson, Anand Hira, Kari Johnson, Michael Mora, and Sam Farrell. To learn more about the case, go to newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts. If you have any questions or tips about the murder of Arthur Easton, please email us at groveroad at mediaworks.co.nz.